Today's guest on the podcast is Kyle Maynard. You may know him from being the first quadruple amputee to summit Mount Kilimanjaro and another mountain that begins with an A in South America that I cannot pronounce. (laughs) So I'm just not going to embarrass myself. But it was taller than the Kilimanjaro one. Oprah Winfrey called Kyle one of the most inspiring young men you will ever hear about. And this was before he climbed the mountains because even when he graduated high school and went on to college um, as a wrestler, he was a national champion wrestler despite being born with the rare condition known as congenital amputation. So Kyle is a motivational speaker, an author, an entrepreneur, but he's also just a fun guy who really raises the bar on what it means to say, I don't have any excuses. I'm going to live life to the fullest. Hope you all enjoy this episode with Kyle Maynard. I know I did. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is the amazing Kyle Maynard. Hi, Kyle. Hey, Meredith. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing really good. Enjoying a beautiful day in San Diego, so can't complain. I have to admit, I'm a little jealous that you're in San Diego because I'm in Atlanta, and you know what Atlanta <laughs> is like oh, in I, July. Oh, I Atlanta. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. I uh, so I grew up most of my life in Georgia. Um, I was at the University of Georgia uh, just for a year before I released my book. So I went through um, a little bit of elementary school, middle school, and high school in Georgia, and then um, did a year at the University of Georgia, and then got to go on a crazy whirlwind book tour. Uh-huh. And after that was kind of wrapping up, then I opened up a gym in Atlanta, too. Okay. So... Because I was at UGA from 90, oh gosh, I, I don't know if we're the, how old you are or how old I am, but I was there 99 and then I went to law school. So I was there quite a while. Okay. Yeah. So I was probably there around the same time. I, I was there in 2000, within like in the second half of 2004 and yeah. five. Okay. Yeah. I graduated law school in 05. So that's funny. Small world, yeah. man. Small world. We may have had like a, you know, late night uh post-game encounter at some point i'm sure i think i would have remembered you i don't know (laughs) you kind of stand out right you kind of stand out so let's talk a little bit about why you stand out kyle yeah um so for your audience to get a little bit of a visual of me basically my i was born a quad amputee my arms in right around the elbow legs around the knee so um i have uh feet but um, not in like a kind of conventional sense, but like, you know, pretty like symmetrical quadruple amputee around the elbows and knees. Um, was born with it, congenital, don't really know what caused it. I don't know, just won the, the family lottery with, um, you know, just the perspective that they had growing up. It was, I think life would have turned out a lot different had they had a different perspective. It was really to try to just treat me as, as normal as possible, to not focus on the disability, to not you know, make that a big thing. And by doing so, it, it kind of gave me a lot more freedom, you know, they're not to say that there weren't incredibly tough times, but, you know, I think we're able to 
and I weather the storm and get through that. I call it the ultimate Jedi mind trick that my, my parents pulled on me. Cause it just, you know, it was like, you know, you're not disabled. Like, okay, cool. I'm not disabled. Right. Like, you know, it was the kind of the perspective. So at what age or do you have, was there like a pivotal moment where you thought, Hey, I'm a little bit different or did you just never think in that mentality and you just, you were Kyle and you figured out how to do everything that you needed to do? So I think it was a gradual, I mean, it was a combination of both for sure, but it was a gradual realization of, you know, becoming self-aware of the fact that I was different than other kids. You know, I can remember like very early memories of, you know, being like out in public and, you know, and, and having other people look or stare and feeling different. You know, that, you know, as I got older, then I would establish a group of friends and everything would would kind of be normal. And then we'd go through some period of transition, like a move, for instance, moving from Indiana when I was 10 years old down to Georgia. And, um, and that was, you know, really rough. But even, you know, the transition of going from like middle school to high school or, you know, then like in high school and, you know, after a period of time wrestling and on, you know, homecoming and prom court and all that. And like, people are like, Oh, that's just Kyle. But then I go from uh, high school to the university of Georgia and then it was like the same thing kind of, again, it was like kind of thought, oh, wow, I thought like psychologically I was over this, but then right. like you realize you're not. And then I go from, you know, University of Georgia to then in New York Times bestselling book and traveling and doing this book tour and all this stuff. And, um, and that was, um, you know, it was just it kind of like, I think that that was like the, the transition from UGA to the world was, was probably the, the biggest, like, shock to my system, so to speak, especially given the fact that I was just, you know, 18, 19 years old speaking for Fortune 500 companies and, you know, traveling the world, these international events and all this crazy stuff. So it's kind of awesome to kind of like look back and reflect on, on the, you know, the craziness of the journey from that point. Yeah, I heard on um podcast with you where you had said as a kid, you remembered praying that you would have, you know, full arms and legs, but how everything would have turned out so very differently. How do you think that would have been different? Uh, It's it's so hard to say. I think I probably would have followed in my dad's footsteps. You know, he was the like football player wrestler, which I ended up doing. And then he went in the military. I think that probably maybe Mm -hmm. would have been my route. You know, I always had the dreams of, you know, being the spec ops guy, jumping on a plane, going after bad guys. Um, I had a, you know, ex-girlfriend who said that she said that I'd probably be, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but a lot you more can. of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> a lot more like, of an probably asshole. Just be like, yeah. She said, you probably just be, you know, really good at most stuff and just too cocky. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, interesting <laughs> perspective. One of my friends, um, the kind of early mentor is the founder of CrossFit coach Greg Glassman. And he said yeah. one time, he's like, you know, you probably would have been a heroin addict or something like, right. right. I mean, I <laughs> think know, about it's, that it's all the so time. Hard to say. So let's talk a little bit about, um, how you learned how to swim. I have a lot of triathletes who listen to this podcast and some of them are afraid of water. And I love the story about how you learned how to swim. <laughs> yeah. My recollection of it was really <clears throat> my dad kind of just, taught me how to float on my back at first. You know, there was, you know, he was teaching me different positions. He's in the pool with me. And then my like memory of it was that like we were in um, a pool down in Mark Island, Florida, where my grandmother lived and um, I was floating on my back and then he got out of the pool 
And then I, I was floating on my back without him and realized that he was out of the pool and, and kind of freaked out. And he was like, told me to figure out how to get out now. <laughs> <laughs> and did so, you, or did you think? Uh, I think I, I managed to do it for a while, at least, you know, yeah. I'm sure he, he probably came in and, you know, this is at like, I don't even know, three or four years old or something wow. like that. So, you know, it just, that was kind of the, the mentality they have now. I, I love to swim. I'm not the fastest swimmer in the world, but can go for a really long time. And, um, you know, several of my closest friends are, are former Navy SEALs, you know, so there's a lot of swimming involved with that. Like it, you know, just, it's spent a lot of time in the, in the water. I got to do my first, um, couple scuba dives in the Great Barrier Reef this, um, this last winter. So it was, oh, wow. I, I love the water. I love the water too, but I don't know about scuba. Oh, I so just amazing. don't know. How, how deep do you go? I mean, first time I didn't, I mean, like <laughs> that didn't, I didn't have any experience at all. I'd not done anything. And then the, the master driver on the boat was like, you want to go? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you healthy? Like, yeah. <laughs> so we jumped in and we probably went down to like maybe 40 something feet that first, Gosh. you know, that first dive. But you know, it's like anything, you stay calm, you know, you use your, you know, keep your wits about you and you're able to figure it out and then, you know, follow instructions. It's not that complicated. It actually, so we had done a mountain climb in Australia and, um, had, um, it was just a two day climb, but you know, when I'm climbing, I'm bear crawling. So it's, it's pretty brutally painfully difficult at times. And then, um, um, you know, with the, with the scuba diving, it was like the easiest thing ever, but it was, it was just so beautiful. It was, right. it, I mean, like life has shown up differently as a consequence of that trip, like before and after the Great Barrier Reef. Really? Yeah. You say staying calm and I mean, staying calm, how much of that is life? I mean, how much of that is the whole mental game? I, I think it's a huge aspect of it. You know, it's um, a lot of the the research suggests, and I think this is probably even especially true in, in endurance sports, but um, you really perform your best. If you imagine like an activation scale on a, you know, zero to 10 in terms of like your mental activation, you know, your adrenaline, all that, you're best suited around like a five or a six out of 10. And it's where you're sort of in your optimal state to be able to perform and react. It's, and, and really the only way to get there is through exposure to the stress and stimulus that you're, you're dealing with. So, um, you know, and, and just sometimes that can be even visualization and visualizing, you know, your, your prep before. And I'm sure a lot of, you know, your, your audience are endurance athletes, you know, so it's, you know, in an endurance event, you definitely don't want to go out as a, you know, eight or nine in, in <laughs> right. terms of like the excitement or, you know, whatever. And so, you know, it's, I think the people that have the best control over themselves in that way are the ones that are able to go into, you know, perform the best relative to whatever it is that their body's able to, to put out. And, you know, sometimes if we're like too activated, too aggressive, it just happened a couple of days ago. It was, um, 
one of those like seal buddies um one of my best friends he's in a second pro mma fight and ended up you know trying to rush the guy right away and got hit and stumbled and buckled in that first couple seconds and then he kind of recomposed himself dropped the guy but then like was too over anxious like kind of fell over top of him as they got back up and the guy clipped him and knocked him out and like it was the craziest back and forth 30 seconds that you can imagine (laughs) and it ended up like the number one play on uh, ESPN Sports Center's top 10 play is not in his favor right but you know it's like that activation level was too high at that point you know and he I think he he knows that and recognizes that now. He would have been a lot better off if he had kind of just, you know, bided some time and, and waited back a little bit. So, yeah. Well, let's talk about wrestling. So you that was your, I guess, second sport because you started playing football, right, early and then started wrestling. Right. Yeah. So talk a little bit about failure. I, I heard that you didn't win right out of the gate very much. Yeah. No, not very much at all. Um, it was like a year and a half of losing every match, or like thirty-five times in a row. What kept to get you to going? That. Like, what what was the thing that kept you showing up and determined that this was your sport? I mean, what was it? That purely that I had to. <laughs> My parents wouldn't let me quit. <laughs> You're those pesky yeah. parents. Yeah. So you and... hated it, and you wanted out, and they were like, no. Yeah. Well, at least during the season, they wouldn't let me quit mid season, which I thought was kind of fascinating. You know, like it's, it's so easy to, to quit and give on, give up on something. Yeah. How different, you know, talking about the different paths of our lives, right? Like how different life would have been had I, had they allowed me to quit that. So what was the turning point? When did you start winning? It was halfway through my second year. And, um, you know, it was, it w- happened very, like the turnaround kind of happened very quickly. Like I started winning a lot. By the time I was in eighth grade, I was beating the majority of the kids I was going up against. And in high school, ended up being, you know, one of the top wrestlers in a weight class in the country. So it, that turnaround happened pretty quick. And I think it was almost, you know, it was way more mental than it was physical. Uh, you know, I had to learn the moves and techniques and that takes time, obviously, but um, the, you know, the mental aspect of it was, was by far the biggest. I just didn't believe, I don't think that I deserved to be out there, that I was capable of it, you know, until I, like that switch was made. It was really, my dad basically said to me, to keep me going, he said, look, everybody loses you know, almost every match their first year, very few people win a match their first season, which was kind of a lie. But like, and he <laughs> told me too that he didn't win a match his whole first year either, which was a huge lie because he definitely did. And uh, then, you know, he's like, everybody wins a match their second season because you're going to find somebody who it's their first season, so we will beat them. And sure enough, that that was kind of stuck in my head. I was, you know, looking for that first year wrestler the first kid that I beat then it was that that first year wrestler and just ended up kind of mauling him <laughs> basically just took him down and <laughs> led him up to the point where they stopped it and they beat him by a, a mercy rule oh wow ball. and so after that I mean th- what did that did that really change everything for you that first win or was it just the mental shift earlier before the win I think it was I think it was both 
but yeah. I think the, you know, I think the, like that first win absolutely was, it was a sort of, you know, I guess a declaration to myself that I deserve to be here mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, that I'm capable. And at that point, you know, a lot of the, you know, kind of doubt and noise and chatter of, of whether or not like I was deserving to be there at that level, like that kind of went away. And, you know, it's, it's pretty remarkable just how much opened up as a consequence of, of like dealing with that, you know, so often I think, you know, and I'm sure some of your audience can relate to this too. If they listen, right. You, you aspire to go and do something, you know, that's outside of your comfort zone. That's sort of that unknown. And, you know, you have that, you know, anxiety when you show up, especially, you know, performing at that level, like, like, am I really good enough to be here? You know, I'm sure, you know, maybe with your first Ironman, you look around and you're like, Oh yes. Everybody else is <laughs> like, you know, so much better shape than I am, or they're so much better prepared. Or like all those thoughts that go through your head and it's just total sabotage. I think in a lot of ways it's our, you know, ego trying to protect us from, you know, from being hurt. Like ultimately it's really like, you know, the, the ego or whatever, like it's a lot of like attention, but ultimately I think it's just like boils down to a lot of our survival mechanisms, right? Going outside of the comfort zone in a hunter gatherer tribe would have resulted in bad things happening potentially. Right. Right. You know, you get kicked out of the tribe and now you're like, good luck. You're probably not going to make it. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I did my first half Ironman in 2011. I remember standing and I did it in Miami where all the beautiful people live. And I thought, um, you know, who opened the gate and let the little fat girl out who doesn't belong here? I mean, I totally felt that way. I was a hunter gatherer outside of my tribe for sure. And I had that same reaction. But yeah, I just dialed it back and thought, you know what, I trained trained as much as these people did. I mean, I really did. I might have done it a lot slower. But um, yeah, it is it is a big mental thing to say, hey, I may not look like I should, quote unquote, but I'm here. I'm showing up. I love it. And yeah. how many of those people that might have looked apart didn't finish? Right, right. I mean, every every Ironman you hear of, or you know, and especially on the back part of the the run, I mean, very fit people are there trudging the same pace I am. <laughs> you know, right. Um, it happens to the the best of them. So yeah, no excuses. So your book, I I know how you came up with that title, but what what does having no excuses mean to you? And what did that mean up toward the writing of the book? Because I know that book came out how long ago? It's been a while now. It's been a while. And you've had yeah. a lot fewer uh, excuses since then. But, uh, you know, up until that point, what did that, what did no excuses mean to you? Because it's probably changed, right? Yeah, I mean, I think in ways that I can't hardly describe even. Um, I think that the easiest way to put it would be in high school, you know, it was just purely based off of like sports. You know, it was no excuses meant you show up and work hard. Don't complain. You know, when you get an injury or something like that, like it just it happens. You just work through it and figure it out. You know, I think now beginning to kind of realize more of like, you know, just the like limitless nature of that philosophy in general. And the fact, too, that I had no idea some of my like favorite philosophers like John Paul Sartre, for instance, like he his central message, like a French existentialist was <laughs> no excuses, just blown away with the fact that like, it's, there's a whole world of, of 
you know, thought and research and study given to those kind of two simple words, you know, and, and just the idea of taking on responsibility for your life, like looking for, I don't think there's a single person. I know I'm, I'm fully confident. There's a single person that can look to themselves and say that they don't make excuses because otherwise we would be living in a very different world. We would have already figured out, you know, homelessness and poverty and, um, you know, starvation, like people that are dying from, you know, lack of water, you know, would have already figured out how to create at least maybe not a utopian society, but a certainly, you know, like a, a, a better one they have. And that's not to say that we haven't made enormous leaps and bounds. I mean, even in, in since the time that the book was put out, like it's arguably like the greatest time, you know, that humanity's ever had in terms of helping people, and, you know, kind of writing global prosperity. I think the message now is a very, like, it's a very, like, a deeper one. You know, it's like, what is the, the weight that you're willing to carry? Mm. And what does that look like? How do we limit ourselves by, like, our fears of being afraid to say something that we know to be true when we need to go and say it, but we cower back because of, like, the repercussions? You know, what, yeah, I mean, ultimately, too, just even, like, and before we even think of any of that, you know, like, just looking at ourselves, and our day-to-day lives and existence as I'm like sitting in my room in San Diego, you know, and like, I'm like, okay, well, there's, you know, laundry that I got to do, right? <laughs> hey, <laughs> my, my house too. <laughs> what do you know? Yeah. And there's plenty of stuff just to go and start there where it's like, and it's, it's really, I don't think we have to beat ourselves up over it. There's something that um, kind of funny, I, hopefully I can do a better job of explaining this than I had before. I said this during a speech one time for like a, a bigger company and they're like, it was one of my only bad speak interviews that I got recently because they were like, <laughs> we just like didn't really understand what he was saying. But <laughs> <laughs> there's this thing, sort of just a thought experiment called the five minute universe theory. Okay. Uh-huh. And this is not something I believe to be true, but like just like as a thought experiment, you know, if you imagine that like all of existence just poof, pop, poof popped into existence five minutes ago while we were having this conversation. And, you know, so all at that point, all of your beliefs, all of your memories, all of that stuff would just be in, inherited, right? Like you popped into your body with this person with your name and these attributes and all those things, right? And that's that, that. So the question then becomes like, all right, if that were the case, then like, what do you do now? Do you have any of the memories from your past? Like all your yeah, past all baggage memories, is still there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. It's all well, those memories, but that, but you acknowledge that it's just kind of made up, right? Okay, okay. But you just inherited whatever it is that, like, you know, like it's not actually you. It's it's kind of like the way that like a consultant shows up to a job site, right? The consultant doesn't have any of the baggage of like the inner dynamics and workings of the organization. And that's why they're able to go and give like the outlandish advice that they could give because they're (laughs) just not attached to any like the outcomes. And frankly, they don't have to go and worry about implementing it most of the time. So, you know, it's like, imagine that in your life, like anytime that I'm stuck, I literally imagine I'm like, all right, if literally, if I just got plopped into like this guy, Kyle's body with these circumstances and these, you know, relationships and these you know, pluses and minuses and these things that are going on, like what would I do now? And it's a very like interesting kind of unattached way to sit back and look and see like, all right, like these are like, frankly, some of the excuses that I'm making and I don't have yeah. to take on everything at once, but I can just go and do something here. 
I would be like, get me out of this girl's body. I want to go to someone else. She's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Plot me. And maybe, maybe else. that's the case. <laughs> you know what? And it's like, maybe, you know, you inherited this crazy body, but like now, <laughs> like, this is the body that you inherited. What are you going to do with it? Yeah. And, you know, just to go and radically kind of accept that that circumstance is what it is. And then ultimately, like, what's within your control and what's not. Well, so if I was plopped down in your body, I would clearly go climb Mount Kilimanjaro. I mean, naturally. Do it again? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, naturally. That makes, that's just, it seems like the natural thing to do. I mean, oh, that's interesting. That would not be my first choice, but <laughs> <laughs> no, it wouldn't be my first choice. How in the world did you decide to start climbing mountains? What, what I'd happened? ADD is my excuse for that. Um, the, you know, really, I think a lot of it stemmed from the fact of like, just wanting to go out and explore. And a lot of, you know, my early life, especially was, you know, like spending time in a wheelchair that was not going to be able to go off into the woods, was not going to be able to go off into nature. So in order for me to be able to go out and experience that and do that, then I had to kind of come up with a different way. And it started as simply as like taking bath towels and duct taping those around my arms and my feet and climbing on Stone Mountain there in Atlanta. You know, it's kind of, uh, yeah, just wild to think. I mean, that's where, you know, just from that point, first time I did Stone Mountain is during a CrossFit competition and told my friend that night that I wanted to do Kilimanjaro. And she was like, you're effing crazy. <laughs> and <laughs> but at the like, same yeah, time, she know. totally didn't doubt you, did she? Uh, I mean, she was, I mean, maybe a little bit. She probably, she she was like, eh, maybe that's a bad idea, you know? Like, just, she saw how beat up I was after doing Stone Mountain. And it's like, uh, I mean, like, she had the point. Like, there is a long way to go to the road to do Kilimanjaro, but it was just setting that absurd goal that forced us to kind of figure it out. Yeah, and how important is it to set those goals as far as not giving yourself excuses? Because I think it sort of ties in, they, they tie in really well together. Because when you set this crazy goal and you admit to the universe, I'm going after this, then it right. sort of raises the bar and it doesn't leave much room for your bullshit excuses. Because you've said, I'm going to go do this and you better get to work, you know? You better go do it. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, I think the goal itself is, really just like a, a way to kind of focus our efforts and attention. We have no idea how many other things spin off as a consequence of that, right? You know, your goal to do that first Ironman, you know, you, you do that, but then now look at, you know, what it's turned into where you have this platform and you're impacting other people's lives. And even if you're like, if we truly touch only like a handful of people's lives, then like those people go on and, you know, touch other people's lives. And that's how things change dramatically. So I call it multi-level marketing for life. <laughs> yeah, it's a great way to put it. <laughs> but in a good way. Yeah. I think that like the beauty of like the multi-level marketing model is frankly, it's like one where you give people a goal, right? And you give them sort of education and how to go and go about like achieving that goal. It's not so much that like, you know, selling that specific product or whatever is the, it's like the outcome that, that matters so much as it is like the development of like who that person becomes, 
for the world, for their families, for their communities, like for themselves. Yeah. So, you know, it's like I look back on that time and how naive I was about doing Kilimanjaro. You know, the, the struggle and the fight to get there and go through that has then, you know, bled over into countless other, you know, thousands of examples of things now that, like, wouldn't have experienced or would have never have dreamed that I would have experienced as a consequence of doing that. Well, and knowing what you know now about how difficult it was, I mean, I look back on, on Iron Man and just think if I knew what I knew now about my first Iron Man, I would have never showed up to the start line, you know, and it, it's that naivety that's so fantastic. Okay, sure. <laughs> yeah. I was actually we were talking, I was talking to my friend about that the other day, you know, like if, if you know how hard something's going to be before you sign up, you know, like if you could really realize that fully, then there's like very little chance that you'd actually do it. Right. <laughs> like no way. Absolutely. But when you're in it, you're like, oh, well, I'm here. I trained for it. I guess I'm just going <laughs> to suffer through this, you know? Right. Like, so what was the heart? So, well, first of all, how long, how many feet was Mount, Mount Kilimanjaro was your first big summit, right? Yeah, it was the first big summit. So that was, um, it was actually only the, approximately the 12th hike that I'd ever had. I mean, the gear was a big challenge to get dialed in. And so I'd done a lot of smaller peaks, maybe like six of the 12 hikes were on Stone Mountain, which is 900 feet, you know, and it would take like the first time I did it, maybe an hour and 46 minutes. I think I did it in like 51 minutes with like proper gear before we left. But um, Kilimanjaro is 19,340 feet. And it's, you know, like a, it was, we'd planned on being on the mountain for 15 days, ended up doing it 10 up and uh, two and a half down. So the, uh, yeah, it's, you know, just you go through the cool part of the mountain is there is that you, you end up going through every natural climate zone on the way to the summit. So you start off in the rainforest and, in up in more of like a deciduous forest kind of like the Pacific Northwest. And then you end up in this kind of wide open plain that turns into more of a desert kind of environment before then you hit the tundra. So you kind of experience it all. Did you ever think of quitting? I know you, it like everyone thinks this sucks. I want out, but did you ever truly think of quitting? Yeah, I was really close to quitting on the fourth night actually. I was pretty convinced that that next morning I was going to go in and um, tell my guide, Kevin, that I was quitting. And really one of the main reasons I didn't was a promise I had made to um, the mother of a soldier. Um, her name's Vicky. Her son's name's Corey. And he'd been killed in combat overseas. And she told me, you know, that family had been trying to decide what to do with her son's remains and asked me if we would carry Corey's ashes to the summit. I told her, oh, wow. absolutely. Wow. And, um, you know, I was in tears when she shared her, like we're both in tears when she was sharing about her son and the story and all that. And then a little bit later she asked, we would take his remains up. And so, you know, I was like thinking in my head, you know, I, I just didn't want to come back and tell her that we'd failed. Yeah. And 
you know, thinking too, I might not ever get another chance to be here, but like right now I do have this chance. Corey, he doesn't have this choice. Like I, I do though. So I know enough to know that there's like a deeper well inside of me that, you know, I can dig into and, and rely upon that I barely scratched the surface of. And I, that next day came out and that like fifth day just cruised and motored and went like harder than I had before. It was wild. Like the reinvigoration that I had. What was it on the fourth day that were you just worn out? I mean, did, did something specific happen that you thought I would rather not be doing this? Yeah, it's partly it was the pain. It was my arms were swelling inside of the gear. And, you know, I know I'm sure you've probably had that happen before too with shoes and all that. Like it just was, became incredibly painful. Um, so it was just the psychological side of this. Like also, am I doing any real damage to my body long-term? Like all those things. Just, you know, kind of in that negative spot loop, right? Where it just starts to just suck you down. And, you know, thinking about more of a realization I made on Mount Aconcagua in South America that we did um, in 2016, but which is a um, higher, colder, longer trip that, you know, funny after like Kilimanjaro, I'm like, Oh, I'm good on the mountains for a while. And then like find myself <laughs> down there in a bigger one. Right. But, I was like, going to say you didn't learn your lesson and carry yeah. on. <laughs> it, um, it just with that though, I think the the big realization was that I was at 20, almost 22,000 feet and physically broken, but just 800 feet from the summit. And, you know, at that point though, I was on a, on a clock that like, if I didn't hit the summit by 4 PM, I was going to have to turn around and come back and made this, like just this realization. I was like, you know, I don't know if I have enough energy physically to keep going or not, or like if it's, it's even possible or if I have enough time, but literally I cannot waste a single second. I cannot waste a, single calorie of thought on like something good, bad, and different. It was like kind of a moment of, I don't know, like enlightenment a very like yeah. intense word to say, but it was like this realization that like, if I'm going to go anywhere, I have to deal with like the three feet in front of me right now. Like that's it. That's the only thing that matters is like when I'm face down bear crawling and like I can see the dirt and like that was the outline that my ski goggles created. I'm like, that's the only thing that matters. So I have to deal with this before I go anywhere else. Even if I go backwards, I have to deal with that three feet behind me. Like it's (laughs) just three feet is the only thing that I have to deal with right now. And then I deal with that. And then there's another three feet and then another three feet. And I just kind of turned into into a game and ended up, you know, sitting on top of the summit. And it's like, because it's a very similar thing with Kilimanjaro. It was like, stop and think about, you know, how far we come, like, I was so fixated on trying to get to this like goal, you know, the summit. And it's like, I was totally missing out on the experience that was occurring around me in that, you know, in the moment. Yeah. It's so easy to get caught up in where you want to go and not see how far you've come. I mean, that is, that is the story of my life (laughs) on a daily basis, but about putting one foot in front of the other. I mean, I had, I had an Ironman race in 2015 where it just, the day did not go my way. And ended up having to walk the marathon um, due to like all sorts of issues. And that was it. I was like one foot, two foot, one foot, two foot, you know, the whole freaking marathon. And then you're there. And, and I think yeah. the, the mental part of that is kind of circling back is that 
I believe from an endurance standpoint, maybe it applies in climbing mountains as well. You have to have this stupid conviction that you can do these things. Like I have never started a race that I did not believe with all my heart I was going to finish. Now I didn't always know how I was going to do it, (laughs) but I just believed I would. And do you agree with that? Oh, for sure. And I would say that that too is like, you know, with any significant goal that we take on, it's not so much inside of, you know, just the world of sports, although the, like the physical is like a great access into things. And I think that there are parallels to things, right. But like starting a business, you know, or, you know, you know, any type of brand image or, you know, like, uh, you know, any big goal could be a marriage even or something, you know, right. It's like the stupid convention conviction that it'll work. Like it's, <laughs> and that you're willing to like, to do what it takes to, to do that like it's there's a lot of the bigger the goal i think that the stupider the conviction has to be right yeah absolutely what is something you do to knock yourself out of the negative headspace like you know you got obviously on day four of kilimanjaro you had a good outside force to kind of keep you going but when you just get like in the doldrums or you're having a bad day. Like what, what do you do to pull yourself out of it? Because obviously you're a very positive person and, and you can keep going and and you've dug yourself out of, you know, 35 losses (laughs) in wrestling and you kept going, even if your parents made you do it. But what do you do to kind of get yourself back into a positive headspace? I would say, but believe it or not, I'm, I'm less positive than you would think that I am. Mm Mm-hmm. I actually am like more like neurotic and kind of like, you know, just we'll we'll start to see like things, which is actually like, there's, there's good side to that too. Like I, I am, you know, there's like, you know, people that are forever optimists and forever pessimists. Right. And like, I actually kind of aim to be neither (laughs) and both at the same time. Uh-huh. Like it, my general strategy for stuff, like if I'm like at a, you know, at a, at a rough spot is to, and this is kind of more like general life stuff as opposed to like just like on a mountain, for instance, but like is to be as pragmatic as possible as like, you know, to get information that I need to look at. Like, it's not like the glass is half full or half empty. The glass is whatever the glass is. Yeah. So I want to tell the truth to myself about where the glass is so that I can ultimately decide, you know, whether or not the glass needs more or less liquid or whatever. (laughs) So it's just like trying to have that like view, but also like, I would say that is kind of coupled with like, you know, a deeper conviction that like, you know, I, I'm like never going to have all of like, the answers or have it all figured out like but like in, actually like kind of embracing the fact that there are like certain things that like we will never know right, right. and can't know and like that idea of of not knowing paints like a, a fresher perspective on on stuff it allows me to look at it it's like kind of from a new frame of mind if that makes any sense it's like once you know something you kind of immediately like create some like constraints and limitations around it. Once, you know, whether you know something to be good or something to be bad or whatever, like 
I think there's beauty in like just acknowledging like whatever the situation is, it's whatever it is, but I can tell the truth to myself about it. Like I need to, you know, like if, you know, if you're, you know, in debt or just caught somebody, you know, lying and cheating, you know, you're like dealing with bigger life stuff, you know, maybe you just like when I'm my best friend, Joey, like he failed out of law school, you know, like that was a big deal. It's somebody, you know, that went to law school, you understand how that goes, right? It's like, yeah. But then it was like, all right, like, let's just tell the truth to ourselves about whatever the situation is right now. And then like, do something about that. Don't just like stay there. It's, it's kind of, there's um, my first Navy SEAL friend, Richard Mackwitz was like, his mantra was, I think like the most simple four word philosophy that there is. And it's uh, not dead. Can't quit. Yeah. You know, it's oh, like, I love that. Yeah, stuff can suck, you know, life can <laughs> suck. But like, you know, you're not dead. At least unless you are listening to this and then you are like beginning of the zombie apocalypse, like you're not dead. So you <laughs> cannot quit. Yeah, there, I mean, there's and a certain level you just got to get your head out of the sand. And I think what you yeah. said about, you know, the glass is not half full or half empty. It's just a glass. And what is what is actually happening with that glass? That is so true. And you know, if you're not willing to face reality of whatever the situation is, you can't even begin to change it. There's nothing you can do. Yeah, no, I think, so, you know, it's a, it's a urge, say an allure to ignore reality, but it's also an allure too to have like, you know, in a different way, certainty over what reality is, right? Neither of those things are, are necessarily what we should do. Like it's, I think just tell the truth to ourselves the extent to which we can realize that we're never going to have like the full answers, but like continue to go and put one foot in front of the other. Like, and then, you know, if we're in a really bad spot, pull ourselves out of hell, you know, to the best of our abilities until we have no more air left. At that right. point, we don't have to worry about it. Right. <laughs> so. I was reading um, one of Brene Brown's books and I can't remember which one it was, but she had posed the question or someone had posed it to her. Do you believe that everyone is doing the best they can? And it was a really interesting little dialogue that followed in the book because I wanted to say, no, I don't think everyone's doing the best they can. I, I don't think they are. I realized that it said more about me that I felt that way because I had to deal with perfectionism tendencies and all sorts of yeah. issues around that um, and trying to look at other people to give them the grace mm -hmm. to just say, hey, I believe you're doing the best you can, even if you, you struggled to think that. Um, I, I really struggle with that because I feel like a lot of people put a lot of excuses out there and a lot of reasons why they can't do X, Y, and Z. And I, I think at the end of the day, it's often a reflection of how I feel about myself sometimes, you know, like, what do you feel? Sure. How do you handle that? Because I mean, you have done so much with what you were given. I mean, not just like, hey, I've done okay. Like, I will never climb those mountains <laughs> ever, like never. And it's just You're smarter incredible. than me. <laughs> <laughs> we both have our own dumb problems, right? Um, is it hard for you to see able-bodied individuals or people that say they can't do something? Like, what, is, what does that do to you? Anything or is it just me? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, like, I feel the, the weight of, like, the question that you posed there, like the one with Brene Brown. Like, it's like that, feel that, actually think about that more than I should probably admit. Yeah. And it, and the, the, I think that the simple answer is I'm, I'm not sure. I 
think that I used to think that people definitely did not do the best they could. Mm-hmm. And I would have that judgment over them. And that was like, as you sort of said, like it's sort of like a reflection in you know, on ourselves. And we're not willing to go and look at ourselves too, for where we could go and do, do more or do different. You know, I think that the other side of it, like, you know, when I started to go and travel around the world and realized, Hey, like everybody didn't have, the same circumstances that I was born into in the family and the area of the world that I happened to land when I came into existence. Like it just didn't, this is not everybody's circumstance. And like, you know, people are doing pretty well for what they've gotten in a lot of circumstances. And that like, I was more inclined to think that like, you know, even like the whole free will discussion, maybe it's not as clear as we think, right? It's not just right. like pick yourself up and pull up the bootstraps and keep going. Like, you know, there's a lot of other factors there. And I think now I kind of think somewhere in between. Like it's, and that's kind of, I guess, like a general, like consensus, like general sort of like um, distillation of my philosophy as a whole is like, most things there's there's a lot of truth in that in between like if we're willing to to look right like in the you know just on the side of like you know even ourselves and the decisions that we make there's you know there's there's um logical decisions and emotional decisions right and there's a little sliver of of like wisdom in between and you know, in terms of, like, what the world requires, like, politically or, like, you know, uh, spiritually, like, philosophically, like, it's, you know, there's, I tend to stray away from the extremes and any ideology and realize that, like, you know, aiming for that midpoint just to a large extent can encompass, like, the, the vast majority of the people that, like, are being represented. And it's really, like, in the world that we live in today, it's the extremes that, that get the, you know, the attention, so to speak, right? Like, it's right. easy to, to, it's it's easier to, like, have, like, a binary answer of, like, yes or no, are people doing the best they can? Well, like, what people under what circumstance, you know? Right. And there's, a, like, a way deeper you know, conversation to unpack all of that, that like it can just be had off of like simple yes or no answers. So, you know, kind of that aiming for that, that midpoint, like, you know, there's confidence that we can project in the world, but that can become like overconfidence. And and frankly, you can be a dick, you know, right. Right. There's like, you know, the other side of it too, that like there's humility, but then there's also like the holding ourselves back and feeling small and shrunk and not able to go and share who we are with the world because we're afraid. Right. So it's like, you know, within all of these things, like increasingly, I think there's a lot more wisdom inside of like, inside of the middle. And you you mentioned fear. I mean, what does fear mean to you? Surely you've been afraid. (laughs) Many times in your oh, life, yeah. but what, what do you, what does fear mean to you? I mean, do you think fear is the number one thing that's holding people back? Do you, I mean, how do you, what do you think about fear? <laughs> Discuss fear. <laughs> yeah, it's how much time you get. <laughs> no, I'm <kidding>. like, <laughs> it's that too is something I'm 
obsess over fear is a gatekeeper for sure. However, fear is also there for a reason. Yeah. And again, kind of like looking at it from both sides, like it, you know, like unexamined fear that just keeps us stuck from taking a next step or next leap because of what somebody might think or, you know, the world at large might judge us for, or all of those things like that keeps people stuck or like how bad this might suck. Right. When I'm sitting at the bottom of the mountain, I look up the mountain and I'm terrified because I'm thinking, what the heck did I get myself into? (laughs) You didn't do that. And (laughs) yeah, then it's like, you, then you just keep going. You just, you just start. And then it's like, you, break through and have a, you know, the, 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 the relationship with that fear becomes different, but then, you know, on Aconcagua, for instance, there was a, there were two instances that I saw people that were in really bad shape. Um, one of which I didn't see the, the, the guy actually was 24 hours ahead of us on the summit day. They went for the summit the day before and, um, there's an American climber who, who died and they just brought his body down before we got there. Wow. And that made me fully acknowledge the fear. It made me, you know, I just question a lot of stuff like what I was there, you know, all that. Like, and I, I saw too, there's a guy who um, earlier in the climb, was coming down who he was just his skin was so pale and he looked so bad and like he um his uh pulse ox reading was like a 40 or something like that or 36 it was like as low as anybody that i've ever heard of having has had so he ended up living you know he he paid attention to to it right so it's kind of that's why like there's it's not a binary answer by any means you know fear is a fascinating thing like it's it's kind of walking a a tightrope with like regards to just our decisions and all that like if if you're you know again in a different example like starting a business or something then it can be terrifying doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it right sometimes you you like absolutely should but then at the same time if the like everything is going terribly and you're going to throw your last bit of savings in in this then like don't do it just because of like the sunk cost that are already in this and the erroneous thinking that has us, you know, believe that like, Oh, I've already put this much money in, so I need to go and continue on until I just blow up everything. Like, no, that's stupid. Right. You should be afraid, you know, and listen to the fear. <laughs> right. The certain, so, there's a certain respect that goes along with it. I mean, every time I'm in a race of some sort and, you know, come up on a bike crash, I mean, that's always really hard when you're doing the thing that that person was just doing and now they're in really bad shape. Um, right. It's hard okay. to to ride by that and think, oh, this looks like fun. You know, you, you, it, it, there's definitely a fear. And then I always use that opportunity instead of thinking, oh, God, I have to do this loop again right where they crashed. I always use it as an opportunity to 
draw on the respect and the diligence that that moment and that part of the race requires, you know, to say this, I'm on a bicycle going 30 miles an hour. Sometimes I have to respect that. And, um, like, like you said, don't be stupid, but it's, you're able to use it as an opportunity to kind of refocus too. Um, yeah. Life is terrifying, man. (laughs) Well, doing it, like, I think what you said there too, is it's really important that, um, it's, you know, seeking the advantage from it. Right. Because one thing, especially in a competition, you don't realize that everybody that passes by that accident is having this, that same thought. Yeah. Right. And having it be in your conscious control to go and say, you know, how to learn from it, have the gratitude one, that that's not, you know, that's not your current state to be able to like wish them well, that like, that they are okay. Obviously they made that choice to be in there too. Right. And, you know, then what can I go and learn from it really is like the, the main thing, like the, like the quick, for instance, you know, when the stock market crashed in 2008, the financial advisors who kind of kept their wits about him uh, were, even though they, you know, their clients' portfolios tanked just as much as everybody else's, then they realized that, you know, there's, even though they were losing clients and, you know, the chaos and all the stuff that was occurring, they realized that, well, a lot of other financial advisors are losing clients too. So there's more money in motion right now than it's ever been throughout all of human history. And they were able to go and and find the opportunity in that and, you know, and and thrive. So now when the the market comes back and their business grows three, four, five times what it was before. Right. That, like that, that kind of thinking I think is so critical to just what, what it means to be a successful human being is to not be caught up in like the doom and gloom to no matter how hopeless the situation is to realize that there is always that hope and and like, where does it exist? Where is that hope living and find it? Right. Well, one more question for you, Kyle, I really appreciate your time today. Um, This podcast is called the same 24 hours podcast. And it was born out of the idea that we all have the same 24 hours in our day. But it's what we do with those 24 hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness and success. So what is something that you Kyle Maynard, what do you do on a daily basis that you think helps make your 24 hours the best they can be? Yeah. Um, I warned you and you still weren't ready. You're supposed to say meditation. Meditation. Although I do need I'm to meditate more. And okay, so do, where do you <laughs> but, fall on that spectrum? Are you not a meditator? No, I'm a meditator, but like it's, I'm a, like a, there's, there are so few <laughs> things that like I do. I was thinking about this on a consistent, regular basis mm-hmm. because of the nature of like my life, especially in the last few years has been so far all over the map, you know, whether it's, you know, traveling different things and, you know, all just constantly like last year, I think my residence was in California and San Diego, but I spent maybe less than 90 days here, certainly. So constantly kind of on the road, I would say that, you know, it's probably not that hard to gather that like I get pretty, dorky with stuff i love learning and i think the thing that is 
consistently like some of the, the, the best use of my time in the long haul is, is learning. The return on investment of learning is phenomenal, both from like just, you know, an experience of life and, and happiness perspective, but also in terms of like achievement and, and what it does for you down the road. Like I had heard it explained recently that, you know, if you were to study dozens of different things over the course of your life, and then like, as those things begun to kind of like congeal and intersect, that that allows for like geometric growth in terms of, of what you're able to contribute to the world, right? Yeah. It's not just through my general philosophy on that too is like specialized and not specializing. And it's something I stole from Greg Glassman who CrossFit founder. Like the whole thing is like to, um, you know, be able to have kind of a depth of knowledge over like a wide range of um, topics and like whether it's, you know, photography and film or like psychology or philosophy or biology, um, you know, or even maybe like the trade work. Like I would love to learn soon, like welding or carpentry. Yeah. So stuff like that, like just, I think is so critical to good experience of life that, and I know a lot of people, you know, work in, working a full-time job, having a family, like sometimes you want to just come home and like turn on, you know, Netflix and shut the world out. But like if we can go and devote even 30 minutes, an hour a day to learning and actively engaged in in what we want to go and learn and take on, I think that that, that payoff is is huge in the long run. So that's That's awesome. That's my go-to there. I don't know. I think my 24 hours is a good 24 hours if I've learned something. And is there anything crazy coming up next for you? Are you climbing anything else? I'm sure there will be crazy stuff. Uh, I'm not <laughs> entirely sure what all that will be, but I will I will keep you in the loop for sure. All I appreciate right. you and your listeners and the message that you're sending out to the world is awesome. I, my sister is a mom of two kids and, you know, like I was thinking about her a lot through this. She works full time too. And like, it's just, it's awesome you know, the message that you're sending to everyone, but especially to, you know, to moms that want to achieve and and have a family and have gone through and battled through maybe not the exact same, but similar things that you have. So I, I think it's awesome. The message that you're sending out to that community and I appreciate you for it. I appreciate you. So mutual love all around. (laughs) Well, take care, Kyle, and we'll talk soon. Okay. 